If you take on a new skill, the first time you hit the, the tennis ball, you're probably going to suck and it's probably not going to go over the net. You keep showing up, you keep hitting that ball, eventually it goes over the net and then you're getting an ace. When people ask that question, where does the confidence come from? It comes from accepting that I'm not feeling confident, but I'm going to keep showing up anyway. everyone and welcome to the Student Lawyer podcast series. Whether you're at school, sixth form, university, thinking about a career in law or exploring law careers, you're in the right place. We are the one-stop shop for student lawyers. If you'd like to join the Student Lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com. Welcome to the Student Lawyer Podcast. My name is Stephanie. I'm a future trainee solicitor and I'm the host of today's episode. Joining me today is Taz Albeek, future pupil barrister at the Crown Prosecution Service, YouTuber and entrepreneur. During the episode, Taz explains why he chose to pursue a career at the bar and reveals everything that there is to know about securing pupillage. Specifically, Taz explains the method that he applied to securing pupillage the three top tips to securing pupillage that he believes every aspiring pupil must know and how aspiring pupils can ensure that they produce top quality and unique pupillage applications. Tab also provides useful advice and tools on how to stay positive and remain committed to securing your pupillage whilst receiving multiple rejections and explains how aspiring pupils can avoid making avoidable mistakes. Finally, he reveals how he has created his exceptional YouTube channel and the piece of advice that he would give to his younger and older self. So without further ado, welcome to the Student Lawyer Taz. It's wonderful to have you here with us today. Thanks for having me. It's nice to meet you. And nice to meet you too. Um, Just for our listeners, it is a Friday afternoon and very, very sunny outside. So yeah, I just want to say thank you for giving up not only your general time, because I know that you're a busy person, but for also giving up part of your sunny Friday afternoon when I'm sure that you could be out, you know, enjoying the sunshine. So yeah, thank you very much. Um, So I thought that we could kick off the interview. Well, I thought it'd be best to kick off the interview by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your career history. Yeah, of course. Uh, So my name is Taz Aldeek. I'm a future pupil barrister uh, for the Crown Prosecution Service starting in September this year. Uh, In terms of like my legal, like my career history, it's it's been pretty much uh, having gone down the traditional legal route. So I went to law school, did a master's in law and corporate and commercial law, and then I went on to do the bar course. Uh, and in between there, I'm holding down jobs, really, uh, to bring some money in, waitering, bar jobs, the classics. Um, and then, really, I didn't, I didn't start getting any legal experience until probably after uni, because uni for me really for the first two three years probably shouldn't be saying this was just trying to uh, live the university life really have fun go out studying of course but like I wasn't in the mindset of oh I want a definitely I want a career in law and uh, I think I didn't appreciate how competitive it was when I was actually in my undergrad so more carefree enjoying the nights out um, and then when I finished third year 
I then started to realize, okay, uh, seeing people around me having secure training contracts and that, and I didn't have a drop on the CV. So fourth year is when I started trying to go out and get some experience. I went, started off with some mini pupillages, wanted just to get a broad range of different things, crime, civil, commercial. And then I took a job as a paralegal uh, for a law firm in Manchester, corporate paralegal. Uh, So I did that for six months. Uh, Favorite experience was working at Manchester Crown Court. I did that for almost a year, voluntary. Uh, And then I came back and... From there, I just started on the bar course. Very interesting journey you've had, I think, into um, well, your future career. You know, when I when I started uni, I was really serious about it because I think that I was that little bit older, and I went to a evening um, evening university, so there wasn't that kind of like party um, party lifestyle because yeah, all of our classes were taught in the evening. But I think that if I was to go to uni when I was you know, fresh out of school and there was that nightlife. Yeah, the temptation for me to go out would have been extreme. And I have a feeling that um yeah, I wouldn't be where I am today because of it. So um yeah, I think that but you know what, I think it's nice that you have had that kind of like social side of uni and then you've buckled down as well because those social um interactions that you've had with people, I think do help you become obviously a social person and just interact with people and stuff like that so yeah I I uh I don't think those uh nights out <laughs> and the bar towers were Did me a disservice <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah I think it's I think it's it, you're just trying to get the balance right like I think it's changed now I spoke to someone the other day and they said first year now counts towards their final grade so um I don't know how much of a percent it counts but you know if that is the case, maybe maybe I'd have been a bit more cautious. But I think it's all about getting the balance right. Like you, you don't want to get find yourself in third year feeling like you're two grey boundaries away from what you need. So, but equally, you don't want to finish uni feeling like it's three, four years of just slog and no memories other than library. So it's a it's a difficult balance to strike. Now that you got it anyway. So you mentioned that you did a couple of mini pupillages and also some work experience at the court and um, other kind of jobs. Why did you decide to eventually go down the bar route rather than, you know, did you do a vacation um, scheme? Did you did you apply? For- I didn't I didn't do a vacation scheme, um, but because I'd worked at a law firm for six months, I was quite familiar with right. uh, the solicitor route. But initially it, it wasn't the bar. Initially, I wasn't sure at all, to be honest. I didn't know what a barrister was until around fourth year. Um, third year, I, I did send out some solicitor applications. I think Osborne and Clark was one of them. But really, I wasn't sure at all. And I ended up finishing third year. And my passion was always crime. Always been interested in crime. That's what I thought if I was going to go into law. That's why I got into law in the first place. So I ended up getting to the end of third year, hearing so many horrible stories about a career in crime as a lawyer. And then I decided, you know what, I'm going to go and do a master's in corporate and commercial law with the intention at that time thinking I'm going to go down the solicitor route or potentially the commercial barrister route. And that was my trajectory. And then somewhere along the line, halfway through fourth year, I met a friend. He starts telling me about the bar route. He ends up telling me that he's going to go and do an internship in the States uh, for a death row 
uh, charity in in America somewhere. And that was kind of, they were the beginning. That was like my initiation into, okay, I'm, I think I'm going to pivot away from commercial because there is a, there's a path here. Uh, but it wasn't really until I did the voluntary experience at Manchester Crown Court where I'm sat essentially in the public gallery more or less once a week looking at criminal cases being brought, looking at criminal barristers, prosecuting cases. And I just loved it. Like by that point, I was three quarters of the way through a master's in corporate and commercial law. Granted, it's not practice, but it's substance. It was, okay, this is what I'm going to be engaged with. And Law is very individual. Like some people gel with family, some people with commercial, some people civil. I think it's about what you gel with. And when I was sat in that public gallery, I was like, okay, this is definitely where my interest is. And in law, you're going to need to be working the late nights. So that's why that gelling aspect is so important. Because if, if if you're just doing it for money and you don't actually find the substance interesting, you're going to burn out quickly. So I end up leaving Manchester Crown Court and I went to the States to do um, an internship for capital post, the Capital Post-Conviction Project of Louisiana. And they're essentially, they're an organization that represent clients on death row. So I turned up, uh, it was a free voluntary experience. And I remember just being there for four months. The work was incredible. It was very eye-opening. I learned a lot about um, the, the American legal justice system. And I think... By the end of those four months where I'm going to court, picking up trial transcripts, speaking to criminal investigators, getting a real in-depth uh, look into not necessarily legal criminal law, so in the sense that I'm out in America, it's, it's not going to be the same as the UK, but more or less the landscape of crime. And I think when I came back, I was like, right, okay. I definitely want to go down uh, the barrister route. And I think that was reinforced by having actually gone to uh, a national pupillage fair and seeing the world of the bar, see, speaking to barristers. And fast forward, what, 10 years later now, here we are and we're going down the, the criminal barrister route. So it's been, a, it's been a roller coaster. Wow. I mean, it certainly has too. I just want to first of all say that I think it's amazing what you're doing that, you know, I just think it's incredible, you know, devoting your life to helping people in such a situation that, you know, most of us would, it was a, just a nightmare to go through, you know, and, you know, you going out to and having experience doing this um, internship, helping people on death row. And, you know, with thanks to shows on Netflix and podcast series like Crime Junkies that is exposing, you know, all of these really unfair sentences, you know, those are great, but people like yourself going out there to support these people, I just think is amazing. So, you know, well done. And you Thank were you. mentioning about uh, doing something, uh, diverting your life to a career that um, you absolutely love, that gives you an adrenaline. It reminds me of something that uh, solicitor Laura Uboy said when she spoke on the show a couple of months ago. She said, yes, I work late, like into the night. But the thing is, Steph, it gives me energy and I love it. It's my passion. So it sounds like, yeah, that's what keeps you going. And 
Um, I like I can do nothing but echo what you said about I don't do it for money. Yes, of course, money is an important thing. You know, we've got to pay our bills and people deserve to get paid and compensated for the work that they're doing. But at the end of the day, it has to be energy behind you. And, you know, you deciding that you want to explore roots in law and getting yourself to America to do this internship and getting yourself into court and, you know, doing all the volunteering. I, it just it's very clear that you have this burning desire inside of you to go out there and conquer this career and, and um, make something of yourself. So, yeah, well done. Thank you. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what you do in the next 10 years. <laughs> well, hopefully I'll be back for another episode and we can break it down. For the past four years, I have been very lucky in the sense that I have had the shoulders of friends and family to sob on and unfortunately for them to vent at whilst I have been under pressure and stress from university deadlines and whilst going through the gruelling process of training contract applications and interviews. They have been my unofficial therapists and during tough times have reminded me that there is always light at the end of the tunnel. But it's not always possible to rely on a friend or family member to help you through difficult times, especially if they are not trained therapists. And sometimes speaking to somebody outside of your family or friendship circle is a better option anyway. If you're going through stressful times, looking to improve the quality of your life, vent or need somebody to remove the weight of the world from your shoulders. BetterHelp, the sponsor of today's podcast, may be right for you. BetterHelp is the largest therapy platform in the world and it changes the way people approach their mental health and helps them tackle life's challenges by providing accessible and affordable care. The therapists at BetterHelp are qualified to help you through everything from daily stresses to anxiety, relationships, depression, addictions, eating, sleeping, trauma, anger, family conflicts, grief, self-esteem and much more. After you sign up, BetterHelp will match you to a therapist who fits your objectives, preferences and the type of issues that you are dealing with. So whilst a friend or family member, aka an unofficial therapist, is great to speak to, therapists on BetterHelp include psychologists, family therapists, licensed clinical social workers and licensed professional counsellors. Visit www.betterhelp.com forward slash TSL for 10% off your first month. That's www.betterhelp.com forward slash TSL for 10% off of your first month. I know that I'm looking forward to using BetterHelp to help me get through the SQ when I start it next year. You know, I'd like to just end on saying like something I found through that kind of roller coaster is that law, as you know, is it's such a commitment. Uh, so if you're going to make the commitment and you're going to go and pay the money, give the time up, which is the most valuable of all, you don't want to be left there at the end with in a situation where you're not enjoying it. So and just to kind of follow on from that in terms of the money because like you said the money is important people want a certain lifestyle they want to be remunerated for what they do but i really do believe that if you are passionate about something you'll be successful in it if you give it your time and money will come as a byproduct and law doesn't always need to be the only source of revenue that you can that you can have in your life like as you go through law school you can begin to kind of play with passion projects and you know playing with something for a few years, you might find you have another source of revenue coming in. And then now you're, you get to kind of have the law will probably be your main income stream, but it, it's not your only income stream. And because of that, 
it will then shift your desire if you end up actually you have something that's bringing a nice income stream in and you're not enjoying the law that you're practicing and i guarantee it's probably you're, you're one foot in one foot out yeah so you know, i was listening to a podcast yesterday um this guy who was kobe bryant's coach and he said that kobe wasn't interested in playing basketball he was obsessed by it and that's what kind of that's what separated him and just made him like you know number one it just reminded me of what you were saying there you know you have to be completely invested in it but it is okay to have other interests you know like for kobe also was writing and i know that he was very much into spending time with his family so yeah it's finding that balance but i do think we have to you know really be obsessed with something in order to be the most successful in it so um yeah i think that Great advice, Taz, you have given there. Also, before you move on, goodness me, I'm spending a lot of time on this question, but I just think it's so interesting <laughs> to um, pursue a career at the bar. How did you manage to um, secure that internship in the States? So you apply, so the charity was called Amicus ALJ, and it's like a process. You apply for, um, you can either do a UK-based internship, but that's mostly, I think it's mostly legal research-based, or you just apply for a general internship and then you have to go to London to do, I think it's over two weekends, um, death penalty, criminal law training, essentially. And then once you've completed the training, I think they charge for the training. Once the training is completed, then they will allocate you an office somewhere in the States. And then you can apply to them for a scholarship as well or a grant. Uh, it's not a mega amount of money but it it it, it helps Better than nothing. and then essentially once you get given your office it, you then go to just doing all the planning booking the flights book where you're going to stay and then you're just out there for three to four months so it isn't cheap because i ended up probably spending five to six grand to do it i saved up i was working at a hotel saving up money to do it um but it's definitely hands down the best experience i've ever done highly recommend it if anyone's got an interest in crime I'll put a uh, link to in the show notes to the, the organisation. If people want to um, look into it, they can check it out that way. Um, so in your opinion, what were the main reasons that you managed to secure a pupillage? Because, yeah, they're difficult to get. I think there's there's a lot of reasons. And I'm sure everyone who answers this question will have their reasons for them. But for me, the reason that I attribute to getting pupillage is, is I didn't give up. You know, I could have given up in the second year, the third year, I didn't give up on myself. Like there were so many times on that journey where the you'd get to the end of the year, all rejections again, and you're questioning yourself, you know, at, at the time, you know, I my background is I came from a state school. I think I had some uh, insecurity there about whether I... I fit into that. And I think because of that insecurity that I carried that through every time I was applying. So when the rejections come back, it would just compound that and it would make me feel uh, not, not worthy. And any point along that way, you can, it just takes one decision to say, okay, I'm going to move on. Uh, and obviously there's all these things you're learning about the way and you're refining the recipe to eventually crack it. But if you, if the mind is, it taps out then it's over before it started do you know what i mean so for me i think the mental side of things were is what i attribute to my success 
That's really good to know. Thank you. Because anything can be learned. The skills can be learned. The skills of how to how to draft the applications, how to prepare for interviews. These are learnable skills. But the mindset and and not and and kind of going back to to just coaching yourself if you don't have a mentor just kind of coaching yourself to through that process that is something that of course that can be taught as well but i think for people who don't have any connection sometimes they're by themselves and that's why if you don't have a mentor uh, it's important that you show up and step up for yourself i resonate with everything that you have just said you know when i was preparing for my training contract i applied for a so just to backtrack a little bit, I applied for uh, the Spark scheme, which is a chance, and I didn't get it because I wasn't commercially aware enough, that's what they said. Uh, but they asked me to come back the following year and apply for a, a training contract. So I was adamant that I was going to get it. Like This was my number one firm when I had to get it. So I dedicated you know, my weekends and after work to becoming commercially aware. I would read newspapers. I would, um, I made this tape, this commercial awareness table, I called it, and wrote what a particular news story that I had read in the Financial Times meant to shareholders and to creditors and to competitors and this and that, and then what it may, may mean. Um, and after doing that for a year and working with um, somebody that I had contacted over LinkedIn and said, hey, do you mind if I flash out some ideas that you know, speaking about my um, commercial awareness case studies? I had built up so many hard skills, but also I was so confident, like so confident that I was going to get it because I put so much work in that when it came to my interview... I went in there with the mindset that you were talking about and just, you know, I hope I didn't come across like some, um, I don't know, this girl that was had far too much confidence. But yeah, I do think that you do have to believe in yourself if you want to get it, because if you don't believe in yourself, then nobody else is going to. And, you know, it it comes through, I think, when you're speaking to people. Absolutely. And, and congratulations to you, Clifford Chance incredible firm uh, really you know you've been through it sounds like you've been through the fire yourself and um i think it's one of those things that what you just said i resonate with a lot with as well because i remember someone saying that and this is when you're on the other side of the interview table that eventually they're they're looking at you right whether it's solicitor or barrister and they're saying it can this person be a solicitor or a barrister at this firm. And that often involves dealing with clients. I remember a barrister I was speaking to said, I want to know that I can send you to the docs to go and speak to a client who's isn't isn't going to be particularly pleasant. And they want to see that when you walk through the door for the interview, like you said, it, it is getting that balance with the confidence, but it's better to be over than under because they can rein you back in through the training but when it's completely absent, they may be concerned that you may not be able to, whether it's in the solicitor firm, pull the clients in, whether it's in the the bar world, handle a difficult client. So I think you're right. The balance is tough, but sometimes it's better to be over than under. And I think the yeah. question that always gets asked with confidence is, well, I'm I'm not feeling confident. I went to so many interviews feeling extremely unconfident. And I think where the com- confidence comes through doing it comes through showing up for yourself whether or not you get i used to walk away from the interview it'd be a rejection but uh, I, my friend was told me about this thing that he did where 
I would always record feedback about what went wrong. But he he showed me his feedback and he would record feedback about what went right. And it's like building yourself up even in the rejection to kind of get to a place where it's not just going in and eating rejection. You're going in. It's like anything. If you take on a new skill, the first time you hit the, the tennis ball, you're probably going to suck and it's probably not going to go over the net. You keep showing up. You keep hitting that ball. Eventually, it goes over the net and then you're getting an ace. So when people ask that question, where does the confidence come from? It come For me anyway, it comes from accepting that I'm not feeling confident, but I'm going to keep showing up anyway. Yes, yes, absolutely. Practice makes cut perfect. And then with competence comes confidence. I feel like that's, yeah. that's the recipe. Uh, but yeah, of course, there's a difference. And if it's not there, just fake it. Yeah, fake it till you make it. But... <laughs> which i've done as well in different things <laughs> but still but yeah my ask so i was just going to ask about the um the podcast it's been uh, i've had a lot there's had a lot of guests what was the inspiration for you to set it up so we set it up in 2019 camilla and i and we were both at the beginning of our journeys then. Neither of us had secured training contracts. I hadn't even started my law degree. I didn't know what I want, what route I wanted to go down to. Camilla was just about, she was applying for training contracts. But we set it up so law students and people that were interested in a career in law would have knowledge about what industry, what legal professions there are out there and just to make the whole legal world seem a lot more approachable and accessible to everybody um because growing up I don't know if it's the same now not with you know podcasts and YouTube channels but for us anyway yeah a career in law was for other people and um not for not for people like us so we just wanted to break down those barriers really and then as time went on and we as well started um, going through application um, journeys and starting to realise more and more what is involved and what message needs to be sent out there. That's when I suppose um, we were talking more about, I don't know, um, interviews and more commercial awareness stuff, really getting people ready for pupillage interviews and training contract interviews. So so it's got to the point now where we hope to be just a one-stop shop for student lawyers who are going through the process or thinking about going through the process. So they should be able to just pick up any episode or um, dip in and out just to, in, in order to, um, yeah, in order just for times that may be relevant. I hope I've explained that well. I think it's great. Like... I'm not prepared for my uh, elevator pitch. <laughs> put you on the spot there yeah, put you on the spot i think what I, what i like about it a lot is that I, i've looked through which guests that you've had on and i think like like when we were applying well when i was applying years ago it was really the only contact you would see from the lawyers is people who were at the firm and i think having people on in this kind of format quite a relaxed chilled environment having people on seeing the person behind the role is extremely valuable i find it anyway for anyone applying they they can resonate they can connect and they can think well you know if they can do it so can i yeah absolutely i agree with you so i've spoken to a lot of people now and i think it just humanizes them you know you just you understand that at the end of the day they're just humans they're someone's mom someone's dad someone's 
you know, daughter and son. Um, at the end of the day, when you when you arrive for these interviews, you're just having a chat with somebody. You know, you're working out whether the firm is a good fit for you, and if you're a good fit for the firm, and if you know you're not, then fine, you can move on to the next one, or you might just not be at that time, and they're welcoming you back next year or so. So, um, so yeah, it's an interesting one, but yeah, thank you for that because I mean. I have been fortunate as well. So I started working in Radcliffe Chambers uh, before I started doing my law degree. And that's actually what made me interested in um, pursuing a career in law. So I was exposed to these legal professionals and understanding, you know, they're just like the rest of us at the end of the day. So, yeah, I'm glad that this kind of platform does the same kind of thing for other people because, yeah, I think it's important to, as I said, break down those barriers. But people like yourself, and they're coming on the show. You're now um, giving back and helping, I suppose, the the next lot come up and, and break through the same barriers. All playing our part. Yes, exactly, exactly. So you mentioned about um, getting, a, you know, your fair share of rejection. What, in your opinion, is the best way to stay positive and remain committed to securing a pupillage or training contract, I suppose, because there's just as many rejections there? Um yeah, whilst receiving multiple rejections through multiple application cycles. So if if I can, before I answer that, could I just go back to the tips on securing yeah, pupillage? Sure. Absolutely. There's something that I do want to add to it. Like whilst mindset for me is incredibly important, just to kind of give some substance to that answer in terms of tips that are, in my view, the the best top three tips I can give to someone trying to secure pupillage. I think the first thing I would say is that what will make the difference is a mentor. Like it helped you, yeah. you know, if you're applying to the bar, you can apply to the ends of courts for a mentor because that mentor is going to review your application and prep you for interviewing. That in itself is worth its weight in gold uh, because there's you're, you only know what you know. And you don't know what you don't know. So if you can leverage the knowledge of someone who's in the know, then that is going to completely change things for your ability to, to be successful. Uh, the, the next thing I'd say is you want to evolve with every cycle. You don't want to be going into, let's say, cycle number two, the same person as who, who was in cycle number one. I on so many times I ripped down my application and rebuilt it from scratch. I didn't even use what the paragraphs I'd previously made. I just thought, nope, this all needs going in the bin and I'm going to start again. And that's a huge undertaking. That's months of rewriting essentially dissertations, but it's that evolution from cycle to cycle with the feedback and the interview prep that is puts that leg one step up on that rung and you're one step closer. And then the final thing I'd say is, and this is very important, it is that you don't want to come, if, if 15 or 18% of people are getting pupillage, you don't want to come with a passive mentality. You don't want to come with not seeing it for what it is. And the example I'll give is that if you want to perform in the Olympics, play in the Olympics, Everyone to get into the Olympics has is competing day in, day out, training, training, eating, dieting, whatever it is, because they're, they're competing at a very high level. And the same thing is when you come to apply for your legal job. 
the people around you taking a passive attitude is only going to harm you because you're you're not seeing it for what it is which is people around you are treating this as a competition they are putting in the shift monday to sunday they're finishing their job if they're in a full-time job and they're working on it in the evening so when you come towards to it with a passive attitude you're already five steps behind the person who's working on the weekends and that is how to see it. i remember someone telling me that when i was on the bar course and it's not that you need to see it in a negative light like oh my god it's me against them because ultimately you're against yourself but it's about bringing that attitude in that's gonna just propel you like when you when you show up and you show up with intention of okay i understand that everyone is trying their best here you're going to try your best and you, your best is what you need to get it over the line so i think they're the three things i would say that really will make a difference in your ability to secure pupillage thank you for sharing that i think that those three top tips that you have just given are potentially you know the most important tips that anybody could hear in the lead up to um going through this process so yeah thank you for sharing that and your second um tip about you know evolving and you mentioned about tearing down your applications and building them back up am i wrong or did i see something on your website uh, do you do you have something to offer to people who are going through this process and writing their applications something like that so I'm in. I'm in. The, basically, uh, since I started the channel, I've had hun- I've, I've been had hundreds of messages through asking me for mentoring, coaching. But as you know, I've, I'm in a full time job. Yeah. I've got a channel I'm trying to grow. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't provide that kind of support. So because I've had so many messages, I've decided to put decided to put together Pupilage Academy, which is going to be essentially a twelve week program going from the researching chambers, to how to draft the applications, to preparing for interview. And it, it's going to include things like an actual audio recording of interviews that I turned up to. We're going to drill the, the application technique. And I'm just going to try and encompass the five years of lessons that I have on through this academy. And just I think that's the best way I can go about helping people at scale. Because otherwise, I'd be picking two or three people and saying no to the rest. So I wasn't going completely mad. You you do you are going to be offering something like this. Fantastic. I'm very happy to hear that. So in your opinion, how can aspiring pupils ensure that they are producing top quality and unique pupillage applications? Now I'm sure this is going to be on um on the thing that you were setting up, but um I'm gonna get the insider scoop here. Yeah, no, absolutely. What I'd say is and I speak about this a little bit on one of my uh, YouTube videos. I think it's work experience mapping. And the first thing to do is ask yourself, do you even have the experience? Like sometimes people are worried about writing the application when they don't even have the tools that they need in the box for the job. So you have to do the litmus test first. And once you know if you've got the experience that you need, and some people ask, well, how much experience do I need? Just think that People are, as an employer, everyone that I apply to and had the conversations with after, and I'm speaking to friends, peers, and I'm sure it was the same for you. Maybe you could uh, tell me as well, like what your peers were applying with the level of experience. But the people who I was seeing applying to the bar, they tended to have a minimum of three mini pupillages and at least one 
legal job, whether it's voluntary or paid, but it wasn't for a month or two. It was at least for a six-month stint. And within that somewhere tends to be their why. Yeah, so, I mean, as I've mentioned, so I went to a university that was taught in the evening with a bunch of career changes with also people that were just doing their law degree because they had retired and they were interested in learning about something else. So my experience may be a little bit different. Um, I didn't really have a cohort around me where we could, like, bounce off of each other. But, yeah, I, I have seen that... Um, many people's applications have got you know a long list of places where they have been at but yeah it's a tough one I think that in terms of producing top quality and unique pupillage applications I am under the impression that you don't need to have too many work experiences but you do know you do have to know how to sell yourself and get these qualities across because you can't just list down everything that you've done. That's too easy. You have to show what you have got out of it. So you've got to do that star technique, which I know that you have done something about as well. So, yeah, so like to kind of to, to build on that, the reason why I always start off with how much experience do you need is because there's a set amount of skills you need to demonstrate, whether it's for the solicitor or barrister route. Ideally, you're trying to demonstrate diversity of experience to demonstrate yeah. those skills. Maybe you can demonstrate them all in two, in two jobs, but really you want to be spreading those skills across a, a wide selection. And, and again, this isn't the level of experience you need depends on the place where you're applying. And I'm sure that you'll agree with, with me on that. Like if you are applying to premium sets and top tier firms, well, the people applying to those firms tend to have a, a lot of experience. And for the bar, you're, you're applying sometimes with people who, who've had a career as a solicitor for 10 years. So many people were, were places where I was applying to, the, the person who ended up getting the pupillage was a 20-year qualified solicitor. You can't compete with that. So it's about, I'm not saying you need this long list, but ultimately you, you, you've you got a set amount of competencies and standards and qualities that you're trying to demonstrate. And ideally, you're trying to litter them over several experiences. I would, yeah, I was just going to say that a lot of these um, barrister chambers and solicitor firms, they will list the qualities um, that they are looking for in their candidates. So you can go through and, and you know, and see that they're looking for highly organised people, people that have got attention to detail, people that are great at teamwork, at relationship building, at, you know, work, like working under pressure, all these kind of things. And then you can kind of like think myself, what, for example, for things am I, am I best at and what do I need to show to this firm in particular? And then you can go away and think about what experience in your life or, you know, what, how that's applied to a job that you've worked in and then build on it that way but yeah that's that's kind of what I did I the firm's websites are very helpful and when looking um I was going to say I think I think that that way is uh is great and I think that is the something you need to do in that like you said when you know what the competencies and standards are then the next stage is tailoring you know looking to choose all of them but you're going to look on, like you said, the firm or the chamber's website, and they will normally identify what's important to them. And then it's about tailoring that application to identify and demonstrate the skills that they're interested in as well. And 
sometimes, uh, and there's two schools of thought on it, right? Like some people will say, well, I, I'm only going to do focus on these skills for everyone. And then some people will say, well, I'm going to tailor this application to what they're looking for. And I think if you can look at your experiences and often when you actually look back at an experience, you you can demonstrate these skills, but you haven't thought about it, about let's say what particular skills you've done in a job. And let's say you've always associated, for example, a paralegal job with communication, but you've never sat there and thought, well, actually I've done a lot of other skills in that role. I have done a lot of teamwork. I've done this and done that. So it's about just taking that uh, magnifying glass to things you've already done and thinking, well, what other things can I pull out? And I think once you've got the experience there, for me, the next stage is understanding that the actual drafting of the application is a method. There's a technique to it. It's not academic writing. There's a format. There's a recipe that they're looking to see and that the person who's screening it at the long list is trained to, to look for as well. Uh, and when you're not applying that technique, you'll find yourself wafting big paragraphs, uh, not being succinct, not being lean and clean, and it's going into the bin. So you've got the experience. You're now learning what the method is of actually how to write the, this application. And then ideally, you want someone to be reviewing it for you at that point. Um, but when you've got your experience, you're writing the application. And I, I believe you asked me this question before, but it ties into this next part. You said, when someone's getting a lot of negative feedback and it's and it's constant rejections what's the boat that's sailing them through and that boat is your why you need to know why you're there and if if you don't know why you're there then once those rejections start coming and that resistance starts you're coming up against the resistance you'll find yourself wavering so i think from the outset Every chambers that I met was trying to understand the candidates why. And I'm sure it's the same for you that they are actually trying to establish whether that is a genuine why or if it's a, uh, a just a generic template, this is my reason why. And more often than not, they're trained to, to, to smell BS on these types of questions. So I would say actually have an authentic answer to that to why you actually care. Uh, and why you're there. And then when you know your why, like I said, get the barrister to review it and just keep evolving and refining that application. And you will get to a place where your 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 experience is unique to you. So that application is going to be unique to you. Your why is going to be unique to you. So your application is going to be unique to you. And then the evolution, everyone evolves differently. So you end up at the end of the process with your application, not someone else's. Excellent. I feel like you can just do an absolute a massive mic drop there because there's nothing else to say. Like you you've covered it all. I mean, that's it. I mean, that's that it's as simple as that. You've got to know why and you've got to know yourself. You know, you as you were saying, you've got to sit down with a magnifying glass and discover like what your strengths are and how you're gonna sell yourself to the firm after getting your why. And before I move on to the next question, I just want to offer a tool for some for people who are trying to sit down with that magnifying glass. For me, like when I when I did that, sat down with a notebook before writing my applications, I'd always kind of freeze when I got to that that notepad, wanting to write things down. So I created a 
uh, inbox in um, I was working at this time inbox in my outlook calendar and every time I did a task at work that I thought oh that will that will fit in with my application I'd move it into that inbox um, and anytime somebody said oh well done for doing this I just put it into that inbox so when it came to writing my application I went in there and it was like this uh, inbox of helpful application um, tools so yeah I recommend doing something it's like really good advice and I- I think that's great advice. And and just to build on that as well, to give someone a tool, on my video work experience mapping, there's a free Notion template I've put together, which essentially has two columns. The left column is the, is the hard or soft skill and the quality. And then the right column, essentially, you're, you're starting off by putting in just the jobs, the experiences. And then in the final column, you're going to teeth out the actual specifics. So you end up with a table with all the skills and qualities that they want on the left. You know in your mind which experience best demonstrates those skills or quality. And then the final column, you've got the actual detail which you would pull from your inbox that you do for these roles and you would just litter those details in into that table. Excellent, very helpful. I'll put a link to that as well in the show notes so everybody can check that video out. Um, so is there a commonly told piece of advice given to aspiring pupils, which typically goes out of the window when it comes to putting it in practice? I don't know if this is, is this the same as how can aspiring pupils avoid making avoidable mistakes? Or do you think those the same covers the same kind of thing? You've got different answers for them. It's tough, right? Because again, it's one of those answers that everyone will have a different response to but a lot of the a lot of the pupillage applications especially once you've got through the first hurdle which is the application itself once you get to the interview they're looking for an advocate they're looking for a future barrister and if you find yourself in a situation like me where you've never done any advocacy before ever i've never i never did any advocacy until i was on the bar course by which point you you're dealing with people who've been doing mooting for 3 years so when people you can you can have the biggest list of tips ever when it comes to advocacy and how to be a best advocate and preparing for advocacy and all this but the reality is with advocacy all the advice and all the theory and all it's like driving like you can know it all it all goes out the window when you show up the emotion comes in because you may be nervous and all these other factors that those long list of tips just go out of your mind and the only way to learn how to be an advocate is by doing. And you get a very limited window on the bar course to, to learn advocacy, especially if you come into it green. So like driving, you learn by doing. Advocacy is the same thing. You, you, you're you trying to get to a place. If, you, if, I get, if I build on this car example, do you drive? So do you know in the beginning when you're, you're, you're learning to drive the car, the first few months is you're thinking about uh the gears you're thinking about your feet the pedals you 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 can't even when you're driving look at the warning signs on the road because 80 percent of your energy is going to all the other moving pieces but then when you've been driving for a while all the moving pieces are on autopilot and now you've got this calm state just to look out into the road see who's coming anticipate advocacy is the same thing in that the the beginning is all the mechanisms, the procedures, the 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 formal responses, the way to speak, the way to speak to a judge, the way to respond. But when you get to a place where all that's on autopilot, now the thinking on the feet can begin. People just say, oh, think on your feet. Like that just happens. But to have the the mental capacity 
to think on your feet and on the fly, you need to be free upstairs and you, you get to freedom upstairs through putting in the air mile, getting the air miles and, and, and just doing it. So when it comes to advocacy, show up, you're going to suck in the beginning. Everyone sucks in the beginning. Uh, and every time I go to an advocacy exercise, I'm nervous. And it's not until the first minute's gone until I've I've been able to bring the nerves down to a a manageable level. And it, my advice with advocacy is just it do, like I think something I'm trying to practice is not being so serious with it. Like okay, you mess up at the end of the day. I, I remember getting this advice from a barrister, and it's important because advocacy is something that when you turn up to the interview, you need to be you need to be doing the advocacy right, and they're going to see if you're nervous. And nine times out of ten, I was getting nervous because I was. It was just so serious. It was, it was, I needed to get pupillage. I needed this. I needed that. And I think the best advice he gave me was just be okay with not getting it. Like life's gonna, gonna carry on. And, and people say, oh, that's easy for you to say now you've got pupillage. But no, like the reality was for me was that really what helped me to get pupillage was letting go. It wasn't, I'm not saying this after the fact. I was turning up to so many interviews trying to deliver a good piece of advocacy and just being so nervous. And when I just finally got to a place where I said, okay, the the world isn't going to live or die on, on this, then you just kind of find yourself being a lot freer. And that's when the best you turns up and the best you shows in those performances. So that would be my advice. A bit of a long-winded answer, but it's it, it, I think the advocacy side things for the bar is a bit of a mystery for anyone who's not done it before yeah I think that what you've just said is you know absolutely right and I completely agree with you when I did meeting for the first time I was petrified literally I was so scared and I'd messaged a couple of the barristers that I'd worked with actually I sent out a group message that's how desperate I was for help and obviously they're all so busy. They're not going to help me with my moot course, even though they're all so lovely and have been so encouraging throughout my entire degree. But yeah, I didn't get anybody to sit down and literally hold my hand whilst I prepared for this interview. But, uh, sorry, moot session. But one of them did say, Steph, like just go and just suck at it because everybody sucks and you have to go through it in order to, you know, get good at it and to build your confidence. And the other cases that I've spoken to before who were at the Supreme Court, they said that they go and they're, you know, have the same nerves and butterflies in their stomach that law students do when they go and uh, prepare for their mock trials and their meeting sessions. So it's completely normal. So if you are feeling like that, please don't let that put you off because it is normal as t- as time kind of like goes by they will subside but also know that people who are far more experienced still get these things you know the one of the cases as well that I've spoken to before have said you know they do get those nerves and butterflies in their stomach but at the same time they've worked on really kind of like intense things before in the past and thought do you know what? I'm actually, I'm getting through this. I'm okay with it. So yeah, it, it just, everything that you were saying just a moment ago just made me think of that. So I think that the advice that you're giving now is very good and and um, many people feel the same, I think. I think when you're, when you're learning something new and you're stretching yourself outside of your boundaries, 
from what you're used to, it's an uncomfortable experience. And that uncomfortableness is part of what it's you stepping outside your comfort zone to learn something new. So although it's difficult to see it when you're doing it, knowing that, okay, I'm stretching myself here. And that kind of stretch is you expanding yourself and do it enough times, you're going to be at a next level and the next level. And then, like you said before, that that threshold of what the ceiling was one year ago is that all of a sudden there's a new ceiling. And that's just that kind of growth journey. So it, like you said, I, I think it's important that someone, and I speak to myself when I say this, is don't be put off by saying this isn't for me because I'm getting nervous and a barrister shouldn't be getting nervous because we're all human at the end of the day and it's a human thing. It's not a barrister thing. I think being nervous shows that you care as well. Yeah. So I think if you weren't nervous, I think that that says something in itself. It sounds like you've you've reached out, like, which is a great thing over your time to get where you are. You've reached out for support. How do you go about normally doing that? Like, do you send someone a message on LinkedIn? Is yeah, so mostly I just message people on LinkedIn, to be honest. How does the message look? So a lot of the time, I message. I won't just message people randomly. I would have read something in the Financial Times, for an example, and I've seen a lawyer who, you know, a lot of solicitors and barristers are quoted in the FT, and an an article would have interested me. So I would message them and say, and say something like, "I read your article that you know you com- on that you've written or commented on. Um, I thought that this was really interesting." Blah blah blah. I was wondering if you know you might spend a few minutes or some time if answering any questions that I've got off the back of it and stuff like that nice segue <laughs> no you know I'm not I it's uh I I have always I really like speaking to people I mean that's how I suppose I um I just like to work so it just because it's just very natural to me um I suppose I'm quite a people person so yeah I mean and that's how I do it really I mean I like to go to networking events I'm not backwards in coming forwards, I suppose. But I think what you said is is, is a great is a great a great piece of advice as well. Like if you can come with not sometimes the fr- the front message being "Hi, I want something from you." Oh yeah, exactly. It's it, that's kind of the behind, uh, and it's it's about packaging. Like you you may want something, but if you can approach them where you can sort of disarm them, uh, not in a manipulative way, but in in more of a positive way and i think that's a great great piece of advice for someone thinking about trying to reach out for help yeah as we said earlier um time is valuable time is so precious um and people although i found that people in the legal industry many of them are interested in giving back and supporting the you know younger generation coming up yeah, it's it's difficult to give away give away your time to everybody that asks. You know, you said that you get a lot of people asking you for help with your application. You can't help everybody. So yeah, going in there straight away and asking for something isn't possibly the best way of doing it. But um I have always found that if you if you go in with like a pleasant message, I just hope that people aren't put off asking people for help and support because they think that they're either going to be shut down or whether or just like they don't deserve any help or or anything like that having imposter syndrome because if you don't ask for something you're just you're not going to help you're not going to get it and I've always been a believer in that I won't let opportunities miss 
go past me. Um, the only regret, I don't think that you should have regrets in your life, especially ones that were um, like come out of not doing something. Absolutely. And I think to, to, to build on that, it all depends who you come across. So the last mentor, I was given a mentor by uh, Lincoln's Inn. She was amazing, like best mentor I could have ever asked for. Um, she would give up so much of her time and go the extra mile. Uh, unbelievable. Like she did so much for me that she didn't have to do. Like she took the whole idea of being a mentor to another level. But prior to her, I had a mentor that was allocated. Uh, I'm not going to say from who or from where, but I had a mentor and I just knew very quick, he did not give a, and you can beat that part out. And (laughs) that's just the truth of the matter. He didn't care. And you need to kind of, I didn't, the reason I bring that up is to say that, well, if I just said, well, that's my experience with the mentoring and I'm going to give up on the idea of uh, trying to get a mentor, then I would have lost so much because the next person along the line ended up being the best thing I could have asked for in terms of a mentor. So I think what I learned along the way is that some people don't care some people do care, but they're, they're busy and some people want to help. And when you're looking to send the messages out, you're going to get one of someone, you're going to get a mix of those people. And sometimes as a candidate, as someone who's looking for help, it helps just to kind of not take it personal, identify who who's what, categorize them and move on rather than just take that as a um, a barrier to getting the help that you need. Because in the end, you need the help. And there are people out there who are very generous with their time and, and will support you. I think your job is to find out who those people are. And along the way of finding out who those people are, you're going to find a, a variety of people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do think that having a mentor is so important, as you were saying earlier as well. So I do encourage people to to like, actively go out there and and find people to speak to and I think that a mentor I mean you know you don't have to sit down with this person every week for an hour a week you can just dip in, dip in and out of pe- people's lives I think you can you can just ask them for advice follow them on LinkedIn like a lot of you hear people say my mentor is um I'm trying to think of somebody now everybody's head is going everybody's name is going to drop out of my head I'm trying to think of somebody quite reputable and um not I don't know somebody that I listen to perhaps on a podcast that's not um but yeah you know like authors or or something like that you can have uh, somebody who's written a book who's a mentor you know you can take a lot from that book so yeah it doesn't have to be such a formal thing that's the point that I'm trying to make yeah babbling now um, but yeah, it doesn't have to be such a formal thing. You can just send them, shoot them messages once you've established a relationship with them. And, you know, you can have multiple people like that. It doesn't have to be one core mentor that you are, you know, badgering all the time. Sp- sp- spread the load. Yes, yeah, spread the load. Because <laughs> you take different things from different people. And so it goes back to kind of what you were saying just a moment ago. You can use different people for different things. Definitely. Don't forget that if you're looking for a way to remove the weight of the world from your shoulders, the therapists at BetterHelp are qualified to help you through your daily stresses. Just visit www.betterhelp.com forward slash TSL for 10% off of your first month. 
That's betterhelp.com forward slash TSL for 10% off of your first month. So, you know, we've mentioned your YouTube channel a couple of times throughout this episode, and um, it's a very good YouTube Thank channel. You. So congratulations on that. You're very talented. How do you find the time to work um, full time and produce such incredible content? Because I think that the standard that your YouTube channel is at is like you do as a full time job. To be honest, <laughs> it looks like that. I, I I really do appreciate you saying that. It means a lot. I, I do put a lot of time into the channel. Um, I think my thing with the channel is since I started the channel, I've had so many skills to learn. So I've always said I wasn't going to put stuff out that I. I didn't want to put garbage out. So the, the speed at which I'm producing content isn't as fast as I'd like it to be. But in the beginning, you're learning a lot. You are developing all these skills. And I think for me, it's about actually creating something that some it's going to be useful to someone. Like you, like like we've said, that time is so valuable these days. If I'm if I'm going to take someone's time to watch one of my videos, well, I want it to actually help them and serve them. So. I, I I make the time for it, whether it's during the week, uh, when I can. I'll Sometimes I'll do the script in the week, I'll film at the weekends, and it's the editing really that takes the bulk of my time. I'm hoping to get to a place with the channel over the next year where I can outsource the editing, because once I can begin to outsource the editing, then I can significantly increase the amount of content that i can deliver but the editing takes just as long as the as the filming and the scripting but it's a passion project it's it's something that i've i've found so much value from i've had so many people reach out to me since i started uh just with such kind messages how much i've been able to help i had someone reach out to me last week saying that uh through my support and the and the videos he was able to secure a uh, a Lord Mansfield scholarship from Lincoln's Inn, which is one of the most prestigious scholarships there. And it was nice just to be able to contribute to him in, in a small way. And, and, and I think that's, well, that's why I got into it because when I started the channel, there wasn't anything for the bar that it was all very, I looked online, there were these books, but there wasn't actually anyone my age who's just gone through and just a line of communication. So that was the inspiration to set up the channel. Um, I want to keep growing the channel. And I think hopefully over the next 12 months, I've got a few exciting videos that I'm hoping to release. So fingers crossed. Watch this space. I'm excited for those to drop. Um, and yeah, keep on doing what you're doing. It's incredible. Thank so you. Thank you for um, helping so many people, you know, secure their dreams. I think it's, it's uh, really great what you're doing. So what piece what piece of advice would you give to your younger self? And a question that I've come across as well in other podcasts that I've listened to is what piece of advice would you give to your older self? I've not heard the older self one before. I've heard I've, no, it's it's new to me. No, I'm really enjoying listening to them. They're really good. They um I really like it. It's quite uh it makes you, I think, reflect a little bit about how you actually want your life to go. I think anyway um yeah so if you could take each of those in turn so I think for my younger self and this advice is gonna is going to differ depending on who who's receiving it but me speaking to my younger self the one thing that I have a 
regret in not doing earlier was shifting out of the mindset of one career. Law is my career. I'm not doing anything else. I'm I'm not learning any other skills. I'm not building a- anything outside of law. And I think if I could look, go back and speak to my younger self, I would say, while you're at uni, pick up a passion project. Doesn't need to be to make money, but start trying to learn a valuable skill outside of law just to explore different avenues and give yourself new opportunities. So that that's one thing that if I could go back, I'd say, I'd also say, be a bit kinder to yourself. Because I think I was very militant with myself um, from throughout the, the process, really. Um, and I think I thought being militant was a necessary requirement for the productivity side of things, not giving myself time, not giving myself really any the things that I needed. It was always about the grades. It was always about the job, the this, the that. And uh, you know what I found as I've got older is actually giving yourself, being kinder to yourself and giving yourself that space. It, you end up flourishing more than you would be if you're not doing those things because you end up shining. And when you shine, you know everything you're involved with shines as a result of it, as opposed to just being focused on what can be. I think what I've been through has been more toxic productivity as opposed to, and I think I've only heard that phrase in recent years, but I resonate with it a lot because for me, toxic productivity comes when you're getting results, but there's a lot of negative baggage around those results. There's guilt, there's shame, there's, um, there's all these things going on for you. And yes, you're getting, there's anxiety, um and i think now i'm older i'm trying to just make that shift yeah i mean i kind of resonate again with everything you just said so i think that's really great advice thank you for sharing that did you cover what give advice to your older self was that all to my older self i would say just don't take life too seriously i think that's uh, a double-edged sword that comment because sometimes you think well if i don't take life too seriously i wouldn't have got where i am and i wouldn't have got the results but really i think you can still get the results without feeling like it's do or yeah. die yeah you know what yeah, i mean i think so i think so like know that this is just a career yeah and this is just a job and there are way more important things in your life uh, in terms of your family your well-being your your life design and i think th- that often gets missed i think people think about the career but not the actual life design like how do they want their lives to look outside of the career and and normally when you're younger you do them in reverse you put the the career first and then once you've got the career then you think about the life design and sometimes they don't marry up so i would say if you can think about the life design from the outset and then ask yourself is the road that you're on going to lead to that place but yeah you know you're right i do think that comes with age a little bit because i think that in my 20s i wasn't so kind of like focused on having a balanced life where i spend time with family and spend time relaxing doing my self-care activities I was very much like on the go all the time and it and I don't think I would have 
if I could go back now in my 20s, I don't think I probably would have changed anything about it. I do think this kind of stuff evolved naturally. So, so yeah, that's it's an interesting point. Like, it is, I feel like it is different for different times in your life. But getting to the point now where I am thinking, I want to balance life. I'm really, like, I am happy that I've got to this point sooner rather than later because somebody once said, like, going into this kind of career where there are a lot of hours what's that saying do um work to live not live to work somebody said that you have to you have to actually want to live to work but I don't know if I agree with that I don't agree with it I think I think it and it depends on what culture you're from and and um what what you've been raised to see and 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 see as normal like if it's if you go to other parts of the world africa australia here in the uk it's it is a very uh profession centric focus in other parts of the world it's not like that people do literally turn up to work to fund their life and for us that's very alien it's like well i thought work and life they're they're almost synonymous um but i think and the reason I flag that not taking life too seriously is because, especially at the bar, there there is a mental health epidemic at the bar, uh, and it's it's all compounded with the late hours and just what goes into the profession. So I think carving out that time for yourself is the most important thing that you can do, and not putting yourself second to the career because they they say, God forbid that let's say you're in a job and uh, you end up getting fired, that job's going to forget about you in, in five seconds. They, they, they forgot about you the moment they've cashed that, the, the moment they sent out that P45, you're gone, you're a memory. Mm. So seeing it through that lens of not that you're just a, not seeing it through a negative lens that, okay, I'm just an employee for this person, but recognizing that if you're not going to value you, no one else is. And you know, I, I remember turning up to a to a talk in London where someone was speaking about this mental health epidemic, and it really just made me kind of want to spread that message of ar- around people that I'm with that sometimes this kind of hustle and bustle culture, if you find yourself deteriorating in the process, then you need to kind of s- step up for yourself and and not just go along with it because culturally within the whichever environment you're in that's the norm yeah absolutely well thank you very much for sharing that I think that'll be very helpful to many people Um, and thank you very much for giving you know just incredible advice and sharing your experiences throughout the um, entire episode Um, very much appreciated and um, yeah I'm sure that our listeners will have a fantastic time listening to this episode and take a lot away from it so yeah thank you i really appreciate you having me on thank you very much it was nice to meet you nice to meet you too and thank you to everyone for tuning into another episode of the student lawyer podcast and we'll see you back again here next time to hear more of the student lawyers podcast hit the subscribe button and leave us a star rating and review If you would like to join The Student Lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com.